Hello and welcome to Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. I'm Becky Parker Geist and I'm your host. Audiobook Connection is your place to learn about the audiobook creative process in discussions between the authors, narrators, producers, and post-production teams that bring them all together, as well as guests who have listened to the audiobooks and have questions for the creative teams. This podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. I have with me today Gordon Lee Chambers, author of Searching for Mankumar, a mystical tale about finding freedom, friendship, and spirituality, and Jared Chambers, who is Gordon's son and also his publisher. And I'd just like to start off by saying there is a lot of creative genius working on this project together as a collaborative team. It's really exciting to be working on it. And just a little bit later, after talking with Gordon and with Jared, we'll get a chance to hear from Wallace Harvey, who was the composer on the project. So let's get started. Gordon, I would love it if you would just tell us a bit about the the genesis of Searching for Mankumar. How did this project get started? Where did it all begin? Well, uh, a gentleman walked in my front door in 1999 uh, who I hadn't met since I was a child. Uh, he's actually related to me. He's my cousin. His name's Andre Jewell, one of the top photographers in the world uh, and quite a bohemian character. And he just spent about three or four years in India. And he had some amazing footage, uh, which we not only met for the first time since we were kids, uh, which was profound. And then we sat for days and what went sifted through his footage and it made a profound impact on me. Hmm. And then we found we both resonated with similar values. I was working with indigenous Australian people at the time and he was, had been in India for several years. So we had that in common, you know, working with, uh, uh, indigenous people and then also uh, we both had a connection with the environment and we felt um, there was a need to really to bring some awareness around the uh, urgency of uh, well, the urgency around the need to uh, address climate change and various challenges that were facing us so that's the start of it uh, I started to write a film script for Andre uh-huh um because we wanted to take all the footage and put it into a documentary which was going to be called the holy water project uh and the holy water project was very exciting because it did a few shows in rajasthan in varanasi it did worm adelaide uh in australia um new zealand uh, worm festival so it became an art installation but i wrote the film script to go with that and uh, we tried to get funding to this into a you know a mainstream movie and never achieved that so we just relegated it to uh, the hard drive where my work sits and then 14 (laughs) years later I resurrected it and turned it into this novel wow and so then Jared you I know picked up the um, the mantle and continued on at some point how did how did that come about well, I actually, uh, my dad sent me a copy a rough of the rough draft oh. and he said, um, oh, if you get a chance, would you like to read read my 
rough draft, you know, I've written, put this story together. I've taken the film script and converted it into a novel. And I was pretty interested uh, to have a read through and I did. And I connected with it sort of straight away and I sent, sent my dad an email back saying, wow, wow, this is fantastic. You should, put, you should get this published. And he went on to say, oh, I'd actually, I've actually gone down that road. I've tried to publish it through another publishing company. And the process was sort of, uh, it wasn't a good vibe around the whole thing. It was more of a salesy sales pitch, like here, this is the package deal, costs X amount of money, and we'll get you product by the end of the by the end of the situation you know yeah and in reality they didn't even know what the name of the book was what the title was they had no connection to the story or anything there was no no connection yeah so my dad had said no nah, I, I don't want to go down that path it doesn't um, doesn't interest me at all yeah so I said to him look well I have some time at the moment like I'll try and self-publish it for you and I didn't know anything about self-publishing at all. So yeah. I sort of started from that point to learn how to do the whole process, Yeah, which was um, very cool, very rewarding, very enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And hopefully it would not, if knowing that the, uh, the challenges of it would not have stopped you if you'd known them in advance. Indie publishing can be challenging, but it's also, I agree, so rewarding. Yeah, look... Looking, looking at it now, there was, see a lot of. There's a lot of challenges involved. Um, I've learnt a lot. It was a, a big, big project. Yeah. For the for doing it for the first time. Now, after doing it, you know, I put systems in place, and now it's much easier to repeat that process. You know. Right. But it it was great because we went through the journey together because where the book was at that point was uh, a very uh, it was just birthing, you know, it was a rough draft. It still needed a lot of work and a lot, a lot of evol- uh, editing and a lot of work to become where, what it has become today, you know. Mm-hmm. So we went on that journey together, which was, um, which was great. It's kind of a little like the book, <laughs> the story of the book. <laughs> it was very interesting, uh, actually, because... Uh, I had been involved with publishers and um, they were great, but they were very disconnected. And uh, I, on one of the calls from the US, I said to the lady, um, so why, why do you think we should publish this? And she, she couldn't answer. Mm. And I said, you know, there's enough nonsense flowing through the river of the internet. I don't need to add to it. I need to know that this is worthy of being published. Otherwise, it doesn't need to be published. I, mean, I was published in the 90s. I know what that feels like. It's not yeah. like I'm seeking that experience, right? Right. I want to know that it's worthy of being showcased. And I sent four copies out, one um, down the hallway to my daughter and one uh, 5,000 kilometres away to Kalkarinji, which is in the uh, Northern Territory of Australia, which is nine hours from the nearest supermarket. Oh, my. Uh, one copy went to Thailand, where Andre was living on a mountain at the time, and the other copy went to uh, halfway around the world to Brazil, where Jared was, and then I just put it away. <laughs> and two months later, 
Jared out of the blue rings. He printed it, photocopied, you know, run it off and bound it and read it. And he said, oh, you should publish this. And I said, tell me why. And two hours later, we'd had this amazing conversation <laughs> about what he'd enjoyed, what his favourite line was. And I recall the one line he was talking about uh, where um, I'd agonised over writing that line for so many days thinking should it go in the book should it not it's so weird that as a writer you can actually get stuck on one line no, but you true. you feel like it wanted to belong there and then you you have a love-hate relationship with it well he picked that exact line out of the book and said to me <laughs> i really like that line and i was like crikey you really have read this thing. <laughs> uh, and then i said well if you believe in it you know why don't you publish it and he was like what that's, uh, that was uh, quite uh, affronting, I think, for Jared. But then when he reflected and he said, well, I've got time and, I'm, and I believe in it and I'm up for the challenge, I was so honoured. I just felt like this has actually got the right impulse now yeah. to actually emerge, whereas the previous impulse, nothing wrong with it, but it was, as Jared said, very salesy focused. It was all about, well, we need to get this and that and this and that in place. And none of it was a connection with actually the book. Yeah. So Jared did it very much with a connection from the book. And the beauty for me, uh, as he lives on the other side of the world, is for the two of us to have regular catch-ups like we're having now right? Uh, to talk about the book and evolve it was just uh, one of the most beautiful parts of my life, really. Yeah. Yeah. On the point of evolving, I want to uh, – let's talk about the music in it a little bit. This has been so – as – uh, part of the audiobook production has been an evolving process and really fascinating. I think the the songs that are written in, you know, where we have the sometimes the two men are singing together and sometimes they're, you know, doing this sort of back and forth call and response. And um, when we first when I first looked at the manuscript, this got this was very exciting and because I love the potential that music has uh, in with the spoken word. But it also presented, you know, several different challenges, one of which is that our, our narrators were, um, and it felt like we should have two, at, you know, one for each of those, those two, two different characters. Of course, it's been an evolving process, and in the end, we're going to have just the one Manish is is doing both roles but this um how to manage the creation of the music where we when we were talking with Wallace there were so it's not so easy to have English lyrics to Indian music and I had heard that before from the people at Ali Akbar College of Music, they they couldn't really see how it could work. And when we talked with Jai Uttal, he was like, mm, I don't know if that could really work. You know, so it seemed like everyone we talked to uh, was sort of questioning whether that was going to be possible. But through this process of discovery and collaboration and, you know, just creative resourcefulness, uh, that the team came up with this approach that Jared first proposed to the team of having the music be sort of a a lead in and then a, a you know an intro and an outro, and then as that evolved, 
uh, we started to, you know, find ways to actually have some music under. So uh, it's they just the the evolution of the music in this has been, I think, really fascinating. I wish that Wallace was here to chime in on this. You know, I just want to give him a lot of kudos for the work that he's done. Oh, absolutely. And as I said up front, uh, it certainly pass on my uh, gratitude. I think he's done a great job. Um, yeah, that intro and outro idea, I mean, I remember thinking about the challenges you faced and I was on the journey with you via Jared, of course, um, and uh, I felt very, very similar to yourselves that trying to put uh, English lyrics to Indian music would not come across as authentic. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, in one of those brainstorming sessions, that intro-outro idea, I think, came up. Uh, and uh, that's a wonderful compromise. And, and it works beautifully. When with that original footage uh, was put together from India, and it was hours and hours of rich footage, the, the original singing on that footage was all in, obviously, the local language from West Bengal and somebody had kindly over those four years when we were crafting that into a, a movie script translated it so actually there were subtitles on the bottom of the footage and so I remember in the year whatever 2000 2001 whenever it was when I wrote the film script I actually literally paused and scribed the actual <laughs> Subtitles, yeah, to get, to get the actual songs that are in the book. That's how I actually got them by literally taking the subtitles off the footage. Oh, interesting, yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, but I think having the you know, having them in say a West Bengali language wouldn't have had as much of an impact because we wouldn't have right. known what they're singing about, right? Right, yeah. And when you listen to music in a far, I love music, it's probably my close to one of my top passions. Yeah. Uh, when you listen to music, and I listen to music, all types of music from all over the world, it's fine when you listen to world music in another language because you're actually enjoying the experience. But when you were to read it, it would have no value to you whatsoever because it's right. very one-dimensional rather than, you know, multi-dimensional with all the instrumentation. So you couldn't tune into anything else. So I think it's fine that it's in English in the, in the book. Yeah, and I think the way that you guys have done the treatment is is beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I have to say, I think uh, one of my favorite chapters, I think it's chapter seven, is that when the group of characters is in town and they're hearing the music, and then we start to we start to hear the music, and then we the way that we've been able to work that in and just kind of bring that scene to life with the music underneath it. I really love that. When I was reading it, I just couldn't help but think, oh, we have to have music here because I kept referring to it, how it, you know, the feel of it, the sound of it, the just, I thought, well, we can't have music in some places of the book and not have it here. So um, that section that you're referring to is just absolutely perfect. Yeah. You guys nailed, nailed that section so nicely. The music that comes in, the mix is so beautiful. It just yeah. leads you in. Yeah. following feel going through the streets there and you enter into the room with the dancing lady and the colors and the music yeah 
Ah. I really, really, really love that section. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, I actually met those characters uh, uh, later on in my uh, life journey in Australia, those characters that are in that scene. Oh, uh uh-huh. Manesh Manesh is his name and his son, Rabesh, who's the tabla player. So whilst that scene was fictional, uh, it didn't really happen uh, in real life. They actually sat in my own home. And paid, and I. They just had arrived from India, and they'd unpacked their instruments in the bedroom, and I walked to see how they were going, and they just sat down on the floor in the bedroom, and I couldn't get into the room because they'd literally taken up the space. So I just <laughs> sat down in the hallway mm-hmm. and looked through the doorway of the bedroom and watched them do this impromptu concert for me. <laughs> well. So uh, I kind of, you know, blended that into an Indian doorway in a Varanasi, if you like. Yeah. It was actually me watching them play and then I just embellished it with the, the dancer. Now, that was from another scene at another time where this dancer I had witnessed on the footage uh, had danced uh, with um, these rings around her or bells around her ankles and right. uh, on, her, uh, on her hands and she did this extraordinary dance. So I took that scene in the bedroom that I'd witnessed with them playing and her dancing and combine them together in that scene. <laughs> That's great. That you guys are referring to. So yeah, you know, quite well. Yeah. I, I, there is a part that I really like in the book uh, that I really enjoyed because in so many ways, I know this sounds weird, but uh, it sound, uh, for me it feels like uh, that once unleashed, searching for Monkomar gained an energy of its own. Once I set the intention to write it. Yeah. Um, it was like most things in life, just looking for some channel to bring it into, you know, into real life. Right. Uh, it was just the channel that was chosen. And so at sometimes, uh, quite bizarrely, these ideas would just come from nowhere and appear on the page. It was quite profound. And uh, one of those particular scenes was at the end of uh, uh, the river journey where um, uh, Agamani and... Um, the DJ have had quite a profound journey along the way, particularly the DJ has had quite transformational things happen to him. Yeah. And they have a nice afternoon sitting on the uh, banks of the other side of the river, just reflecting on what's happened and saying goodbye, really. And, um, and Agamani uh, and the DJ is still struggling with this whole esoteric world that's uh, hard grasp. And the DJ connects and says, you know, gives him that uh, thing that, you know, the God is melody. Melody is the God. And that's because uh, whether you're sleeping or you're eating or you're awake, it's always there. And suddenly the DJ has the realisation because of his love through music that he can actually connect in, right? Right, yeah. And it just felt... Like it came from nowhere and it Mm. just arrived and it sat there on the page and I thought that was a perfect, you don't know how you're going to resolve that scene. Right. And it just resolves itself, right, which is quite neat. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Tell us a little bit more about the the messages or or an overall message. What would you, maybe in relation to what you would like this to, the kind of impact that you would like searching for Mankumar to have for your listeners? Well, I think uh, 
that's a massive question and thank you for asking. I obviously would love everyone to have their own personal experience that is meaningful to them. I certainly wouldn't want to have a formula that everyone was able to apply. Uh, but if there's two things that inspired me to write the book, one was my love of nature mm. and the other was my absolute uh, interest in raising our consciousness. Yeah. Uh, I do think as a human race we are living way below our potential. I think we um, get lost in things that are trivial. Mm-hmm. Uh, we fall prey to fear and, and anxiety as we're experiencing right now worldwide mm-hmm. and that easily takes us away from who we really are. Yeah. And uh, so if there's any, anything that I would hope come out of this book is that all of us as a a human species were to just you know realize our potential that we can expand our consciousness and make this absolutely magnificent planet we've been gifted with uh, a wonderful home for future generations i'm actually just writing another book at the moment and in that book um I had this realization that when we realize that we're, um, that, you know, all babies cry with the same tears and that we all cry with the same tears, that we'll realize we're just one tribe yeah. on this planet. And, um, and when we appreciate that every culture on the planet loves music, then we'll all know that we are all of us from the realm of age. Yeah, And when we sort of respect each other and the future of us, you know, children and all the species on the planet in the same way that we'd like to respect our own future, in the, sa- in the way that we uh, can value others' opinions in the way that we'd like our own opinions to be valued, then uh, we'll be proudly human. So if someone can uh, read this book and we can realise how to be proudly human, I'll be on it and there's 20 uh, reviews that i've seen on uh, amazon and that for me is a measure of success is that if there's 20 people in the world who've read this and found a connection i'm just so overawed and thank them gratefully for having gone on that journey with me yeah yeah well it's a great it's a great mission it's a great journey i'm glad to be a part of this journey as well I find a lovely reflection in that you and Jared are working together and my daughter, Jerry Lee, and I are working together and we're all on this project together. So I find that especially um, enjoyable. And um, Well, that's uh, very interesting <laughs> because there's no, I don't uh, subscribe to random acts of coincidence. Right. I think that everything <laughs> has a reason for why it happens and yeah. I think we're all connected, right? So, yeah. Uh, I find it uh, absolutely awesome that uh, the universe has brought us together and that someone like yourself could resonate with the project and put as much love and creativity as you have. And Jerry Lee too. Uh, It's interesting, Jared Lee, Gordon Lee and Jerry Lee. Um, (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's another coincidence, not, uh, which is quite interesting because um, We've got the, that in common, the Lee part. But I do like the fact that you're working with your daughter and that Jared and I had such an extraordinary journey. And then I asked you up front about your business. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited that Jared's actually creating a business for himself out of this. Mm-hmm. And he's got two further books he's currently working on for other people. 
Uh, so it's been great on that level too that he's able to create a business. I mean, he had a very good career back in Australia working on multiple movies like The Gatsby and, mm. you know, Gods of Egypt and all those movies he worked on. But in Brazil with the language and all of that, he's had to reinvent himself. And yeah. uh, this has been a great opportunity to reinvent himself. So it's had multiple layers. <laughs> yes, indeed. How's it been for you, Jared, working with that? <laughs> oh, it's been been amazing. We've always always done things together from from uh, from the from my first memories. You know, I can remember putting together children's books with him when I was four, five, six years old. You know, yeah, and endless times we spent together. You know, so it was natural. Yeah. working together we work really well together it's yeah. easy you know be completely honest and true with each other you know there's no barrier around anything we do you know so that kind of without having any of that barrier to overcome you can just get down to creating something that has meaning and quality you know yeah uh, so that that was easy you know we yeah. it just gelled really easily and it was perfect for me like uh, my dad said the timing was was perfect because I was here in Brazil and I was trying to sort of figure out what I could do next and it was something I never really thought of no it wasn't a path that I had sort of imagined going down began on that journey it just sort of opened up for me and I could see opportunities and I enjoyed doing it so that was really special for me and like my dad said now I have um, two other clients that I'm working with I'm doing a, ch a children's book and a poetry book so that is that's really inspiring and really fun so yeah, yeah I'm looking forward to just creating more projects like this you know and it was really special that I, I can't remember exactly how I came across Pro Audio Voices, but I, I'm so happy that I did. I, I came across you guys and I sent you that email ages and ages ago. I said, here's the project. It's an interesting one, you know, because I read a bit, of, a bit of your bio and you, you guys said, oh, we work on all sorts of different projects. And I thought, okay, that's good because we have a lot of different elements inside this book. That we'll need we'll need someone who's really invested and uh, has a sense of imagination and <laughs> ready to go on the journey with us. And right from the beginning, you were clear. You were yes, for sure. Let's do it. You know, let's um, get involved. So I was yeah. really really um, happy about that. Great, great. Let's take just a short break and come right back. Here at Pro Audio Voices, we typically work with independently published authors and small publishers who have titles that they really care about. They really want to get them out there to the world, but are challenged with figuring out exactly how to make it the best it can be. We're here to help with audiobook production and marketing to find the solutions that will help you have a greater impact in the world. Whether your project is just for a single voice and straight narration, or whether it's a more complex project that may involve a full cast or music or sound effects, we have the team to help bring your story to life. To learn more about how we might help with your project and to see if we're a good fit for each other, book a discovery call. Just go to proaudiovoices.com slash get hyphen started. Let's start the conversation. 
For the next part of the interview, Jerry Lee Geist joined us. Jerry Lee is my daughter and our director of production. So on this project, we had a father and son, author, publisher, and mother-daughter, producer, and director of production. And what was it about the content that resonated with you? Being able to, to sort of journey along with other people as they're going, mm. whether they're fictional or not, you know, is yeah. a, I think it's a valuable process because it helps us all get in touch with our own journeys. Mm. That's so. amazing. Well, it's been quite extraordinary hearing from different people how they resonated in different ways with the book, right? Yeah. Uh, which I really, really enjoy because uh, sometimes people say things and I think, oh, I never thought of that or I didn't get that out of it. So it's become a very personal journey for everybody who, you know, has engaged in that way. So I've enjoyed that part of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I had a friend, uh, she's working on a very big environmental project in Western Australia, which is a state massive state on the west of our country. She read the book and she said, oh, I've realised that I'm constantly living uh, as if I'm one day going to finish this project and forgetting to actually be where I am right now. Uh, uh, and yeah. she said, I, I realise I'm not perfect and that project's not finished, but that's okay. For reading this book, I felt like it was okay to not be perfect and it was okay to be where I was. And I thought, right. oh, well, that's quite a nice way to, to resonate with it. And another, fr another friend uh, uh, said, oh, it's about friendship. It's about two men and a long-term friendship. And what's magnificent is how people can have long-term friendships over you know, a span of years when you've been around for around the block a few times. Yeah. And then you find you've had friends and you can say, oh, I've known that person for 30 years. <laughs> and uh, it was just a simple little way of looking and I thought, well, there's something profound in having a friend you've known for that long that you've it journeyed is. through life with. Yeah. So, you know, it's just so many layers on which people are, are connecting. It's really beautiful. Yeah. And another gentleman who's, uh, who works quite a lot, in, I don't know him very well, but he works in uh, executive type leadership programs and mental health and that sort of thing. And he read the book and reached out to me and asked if he could meet me and have lunch. And he said, tell me it's all about the monkey mind. And I'm like, monkey mind? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and then it was a psychological condition or phenomenon, I'm not sure. Uh, and he thought he'd found this whole meaning in it because the name was Monka Mind. Somehow it related to uh -huh. the monkey mind. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and I sat there at lunch thinking, how do I answer this? No, actually, that wasn't in my mind when I wrote it. But I'm so glad that it is for you, you know. Uh, that's what's beautiful. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, actually, I owe so much to Jared because I wouldn't have published this work not for him. And he's the one who prodded uh, me to publish. I understand something really extraordinary happened before you went to publish. Would you share that story? Just before I went to publish, uh, someone said to me that you don't have authenticity to really speak about India, publish something from India. So I thought, well, I'd better go to India and ask for authenticity, mm. uh, which turned into a whole journey of its own, which I haven't got the time to tell you about now. But needless to say, I finally got through New Delhi to Varanasi and I was sitting on a balcony there writing the last lines of this book 
thinking what is authenticity and how does one get authenticity to actually put something out and this lady walked out onto the balcony with this massive camera she didn't see me because i was sitting near my door it was a private balcony and she had started taking photos of the ganges and then she turned around and she went oh i'm really sorry uh, is this a private balcony and i said it is but beautiful view to take photos and so we started having a conversation her name was sadhana Indian lady who lives in uh, LA. She went as a bride when she was 30 years ago as a, you know, arranged marriage. And she's lived there with her Indian partner for 30 years. And she always wanted to go to Varanasi and she'd never, and he doesn't like travel. So she decided to set off on her own and went to Varanasi. So, um, I, so she said, what are you writing? So I told her a bit about the book and she said, oh, I'd really like to bless the book tomorrow. I've got this red sari that I've always wanted to wear and I'm going to wear it tomorrow for the first time. So at 5 a.m. she hired a boat and she went out and she sang all these, I suppose, hymns in Hindi and sent 27 flowers out into the Ganges to bless the book for me. Wow. And I was like, well, if I haven't got authenticity now. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, now you have it. That's so yeah. cool. Uh, that was the that was the finale before we actually published. So it was quite good. That was uh, it. wasn't We were actually we had the book ready like a month or so. Or you wrote the final lines there, but we were pretty much ready to go. But we were holding back until that moment, and that happened, and it just sort of went. All right, <laughs> let's go public. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, she bought she bought these little candles and flowers from this little flower seller who was, you know, used to selling two or three. She said, I'll take the whole basket. And then she took the basket of flowers from this girl and said, and at each one she released into the Ganges with a, a little chant. And other boats were going by and they were, you know, doing this rapport, call and echo type chanting. But the previous day when I first met her, I went and had a cup of chai with her in the in the dining area of this place where we were staying, the Ganpati guest house, which is Ganesh. And she started telling me the story of Ganesh. And then she said, oh, today I'm going to look for Shiva's bath because Shiva, obviously Varanasi is the city of Shiva and uh, Shiva's... Uh, Bath is a very significant place because Ramachandra, and she said, like your book, for 14 years was in exile. Ramachandra was in the forest for exile for 14 years, and his wife was kidnapped when they were in exile by some Muslim king, and uh, finally he was rightfully reinstated on the throne, and he got his wife back, uh, and uh, Sita was her name. And uh, when they went to take the throne, the people said, Sita can't take the throne because she's uh, been with another man. And she said, well, I was kidnapped. I mean, I didn't go with another man voluntarily and I never gave myself to that Muslim king who was desperately in love with her, but she never, you know, gave in. Anyway, the people were, it's not acceptable. So she agreed to the way gods do, to uh, transcend to heaven and uh, allow Rama. Ramachandra to take the throne so that she wouldn't be an impediment for him being king. But just before she did, her earring fell into Sita's bath. So she told me the story that she's going to find Sita's bath and this earring. And she had these two beautiful earrings she was wearing. I was looking, that's what started the conversation. I said, those are nice earrings. Anyway, so 
Um, the next day when we were on the boat, she got this red sari and she had another set of absolutely beautiful earrings. And I said, oh, those are really beautiful earrings. And when she'd come back later that previous day, she said, I found Shiva's bath. And then she finished telling me the story that every time people come to heaven, Ramachandra asked them, have you seen Sita's earrings? Because my wife is still nagging me about the earring that dropped in Shiva's bath that I never found, right? So as she was leading the water, this candle out, this earring fell off into the Ganges out of her ear, this beautiful earring, after I'd listened to this whole story of hers. And I was like, that's profound. And she looked at me and she had such, you know, obviously liked her earrings because she'd worn such beautiful earrings. And yeah, she told me this whole story over a couple of days and then her earring fell in the water. And, I, and she looked at me and I looked at her in horror thinking she's going to be upset and she just started to laugh. <laughs> and I, I, I momentarily thought I could grab that earring and dive into the Ganges, but when you look at that water, you definitely don't want to dive in. I was like, I'm not there. <laughs> hilarious. But uh, so then I came back and thought, well, that's a thoroughly blessed book. Mm. We can publish it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Interesting. Well, it's a delight, absolutely. Oh, it's been a delight all along the way. So I want to just acknowledge you both and thank you both. And I want to thank you all for being here and uh, just being a part of this opportunity to hear more about the Searching for Mankumar project. And uh, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure, Becky. And I've, uh, I've enjoyed working with you guys and Jared so much. Uh, much appreciated. Yes, thank you so much, Becky, and I'm looking forward to um, doing some more projects with you into the future. So we'll, um, yeah, we'll do it again for sure. Take care, Becky. Wallace Harvey, the composer for the project, was not able to join us for the original conversation, but I was able to catch up with him later and ask him some questions about his part as the composer on Searching for Mankumar. So, Wallace, in the process of composing the music for Searching for Mankumar, can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, uh, your background in this style of music and then how that has played into your process? Yes. Well, um, I have played uh, classical, Western classical violin since I was a child. And then when I was... Uh, Oh, well, right after I got my uh, bachelor's degree, I came to the Bay Area and studied with uh, Ali Akbar Khan, the uh, Sarod player, who's from uh, Bengal himself originally, and uh, studied uh, Indian classical music with him for, uh, well, it was about 16 years from that time, from the time I met him until he passed away. And uh, of course, it's a wonderful musical community that's part of the Ali Akbar College there. So I'm really um, blessed to have gotten to know so many people through that. But uh, so I studied the Indian classical music, but then uh, also I started playing um, with some Bengali people who live in the South Bay uh, of San Francisco. Uh, and um, <clears throat> they tend to focus on, although not exclusively, sing and play what is called Rabindra Sangeet. And this is the uh, music that was composed, the songs composed by the uh, 
famous uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, Indian or Bengali uh, author uh, and poet uh, Rabindranath Tagore. He wrote many songs and uh, so his music is kind of its own genre. It's kind of a mixture of Bengali folk music, light classical, and then some sort of Western musical ideas too that are in there. And so, uh, so I performed uh, several times at the North American Bengali conference with different uh, groups and that. So, uh, and then when I visited India, India, I stayed mostly in the, um, uh, actually mostly in the Kolkata area. Well, and uh, uh, not just Ali Akbar Khansa, but also my uh, tabla teacher, Shwapan Chaudhary, also is uh, from Kolkata. Uh, and so being around them, and of course, Indian music teachers like to cook for their students too. So uh, I got to taste authentic Bengali food uh, before I ever went to India, thanks to uh, my music teachers that way. Um, so also though, even before I realized what it was, I had heard uh, recordings of, of music of the balls of Bengal. Actually, as a child, uh, my father got some of the Nunsuch, uh uh, Explorer series, and they have some ball music, ball music uh, on on that. So I had been hearing these sounds even as a child, not really knowing what it was. So when I finally was able to put that into context uh, as an adult, it's uh, you know has a lot more meaning uh, that way. And of course, I've uh, always been attracted to the sort of wandering mendicant element of the ball uh, subculture. So, uh, but uh, so all of those. Things uh, certainly came into play for me in the compositional process. Uh, I consciously tried to not make it too classical uh, in a way. You know, there's some, you know, some of the musicians as they're described in the uh, text are, some of them are classical and some of them aren't. So uh, I tried to uh, reflect that in the music. Nice. And so this was... Early on in the process, as we were figuring out how to do these songs that are written in the text with the two voices, some call and return, um, and, and some where they're singing together, uh, it, actually, you know, at, in the same lines, and then others, other songs where it's just one of the characters is singing. So I know that this was a tricky thing. Because even from my my early conversations with the folks at Ali Akbar, that they expressed that Indian music with English lyrics is not really a thing you do. And it was before I had expressed any of that, I know you had also said that same thing to me. And so how about if you uh, tell us a little bit more about how that that issue got resolved in going forward with the um, the approach to the music for the songs yes well and it is yeah uh like i say it is as you point out it, it's very challenging somehow to make uh english text and uh indian devotional or other styles of music sound okay together they they're somehow uh there's a disconnect there and so uh, that was some something that yes, I, in, in fact, I, I had a little bit of trepidation about that. And uh, fortunately, keeping it as uh, a spoken instead of having the 
it, I think it's about, uh, it's the disconnect between the singing style and the wording. And I think there's some different, uh, there are features of Indian languages that I would say, especially the vowel sounds, also the way consonants can come at the end of a syllable or not, that sounds better with the sort of melismatic quality of Indian melodies anyway. And that with English lyrics or English singing, you know, with that kind of melody, it sounds odd. But if you have a spoken text that is recited, so uh, then the listener can sort of in, make that fill in the gap themselves. They hear the music, but then they hear the spoken text so they can, uh, or the, the listener or reader as such as it is, can, can sort of make that connection themselves. And I think that works a lot better. And in fact, even Ali Akbar Khan made, uh, well, he made an album of, oh, it's the uh, Fleur de Mal, uh, it's French poetry, but recited in English with him playing over it, which was a very uh, kind of a, a interesting project. So that was possible even, you know, for him. Whereas I think, you know, trying to sing in English, again, Indian devotional or even like classical style of singing doesn't doesn't work very well. Yeah. And and tell us about the the actual assembly of the music because I know that you played some of the instruments. Right. Jayutal played some of the music. You're not in the same location. Right. Talk to us about how that that layering and and then your process about that assembling of the um the finished pieces. Right. Well, so in general I would fix you know, the melody of whatever I was playing and, and write it down or, you know, um, uh, have it so that it was fixed in front of me so that I, you know, because of course in, in Indian classical music, we're trained to improvise a lot and, uh, and sort of not play anything the same way twice. So, but of course, if you're, you know, going to have other people play on top of, or even just trying to accompany yourself, then it has to be fixed pretty precisely in order to do that. So usually I would compose the melodies, usually with the violin, sometimes with singing and harmonium, just myself, you know, sort of. Uh, and then uh, usually I would start with the violin track would be the first one that I would record. But what I would do is while I was playing violin, I would have an electric metronome playing in my headphones so that I could really play at a very precise meter, basically, so that then someone else could accompany that and uh, that they would have a good chance of syncing up because, you know, I'm not, neither of us are speeding up or slowing down as it goes. So that was something that, you know, it had to be. Uh, and of course, uh, a lot of times when you're over, you know, overdubbing things like this, you actually do have a what's called a click track that is an independent track that sort of keeps everybody, everybody together. But because of the way we were doing this, we didn't really have that luxury. Right. Uh, so instead, things had to be very precise so that if you layered them over one another, uh, they wouldn't start getting out of, uh, out of sync with each other. Right. Beautiful. So click track, sort of like a, a metronome. Right. It is uh, an electric metronome that just plays usually in one's headphones if one's playing, you know, in a studio. And 
you know that that click is at the same exact time as the person who maybe recorded the previous track that you're playing on top of. So it gives you an added level of precision. Uh, but in this case, like I said, you know, I had to sort of trust the electric metronome that I had uh, that way. And also, of course, use my ears to make sure that I was playing with it, you know, previous, previously recorded track. And so, um, and of course, the more layers you add, the more complicated uh, that can become. Yeah. Right. Now, I know in uh, in Western music, so much of it, we have drums, which are providing that rhythmic, uh, that right. coordinating beat, right? And what about in performance for this kind of uh, folk Indian uh, style? Is there somebody who's sort of in the group, in a live performance, driving that? Or how does that work? Uh not necessarily, and that's one of the you know one of the elements of Indian both folk and classical music that's very important is that the drummer isn't necessarily the person who's setting the pulse. They're keeping the pulse, they're enforcing the pulse, but the pulse actually exists uh, well and often if if it's a drummer accompanying a singer, perhaps, then the singer might actually be clapping herself or himself so that that's actually the pulse uh, that, and the drummer is actually accompanying the singer rather than sort of providing the pulse that everyone is relying on in that sense. And of course, and I would say too, that um, many of the Indian percussion instruments are in fact more like melodic instruments themselves. Right. Then, um, say, uh, just a drum, even, a, you know, even a, a, a drum set or trap hit in Western music, which can be do a lot of melodic things with toms and all of this. But still, the way that, uh, like I say, the, um, well, the modulation of the drums in Indian um, folk and classical drumming that gives it that sort of phrasing and a vocal quality that way. So I would say that in that sense, uh, Indian percussion instruments really are more like melodic accompanists than uh, just percussion, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And you've mentioned, I think, several, maybe all of the instrumentation instruments that are in used in the audiobook. But could you just sort of list those out for us? Well, let's see. There, uh, there's of course the violin uh, and actually viola on one of the uh, on at least one of the tracks. I played uh, viola instead of violin, and of course viola is it's an octave lower, basically. Also, the mandolin, which uh, is an instrument that is, of course, it's not really indigenous to India, but it has it was brought to India fairly early on, I think, by the Portuguese, and has become part of folk music in India, and there's some great light classical and uh, uh, mandolin players. And of course, you hear the mandolin a lot in film, Indian film music. So the mandolin uh, is there. Also, uh, of course, the tabla. And then, uh, of course, uh, Jayatal was playing the ekdar, which is a sort of, again, a melodic percussion instrument uh, that, uh, again, can be modulated to provide almost a vocal Kind of sound, and then actually, very briefly, I think it, I think it made the cut, so to speak, uh, to imitate the sound of the dancers' bells. I actually 
used a, uh, a tambourine that had bells on it. And so that's actually, uh, so, so there is a tambourine uh, uh, with bells on it at, at one point there too, if that, uh, if that was, that got used. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, did you, is the harmonium in there? I don't think, no, actually we, and the reason that the harmonium ended up not being used is that uh, my harmonium, uh, actually I don't have one that's tuned to a concert C, so uh, it was too complicated to try and uh, layer it with the other instruments because it would out of tune with uh, the, the pitch that we were using for that. So we ended up not using the harmonium, even though I know harmonium is mentioned at one point in the, in the text. Yeah, I think the uh, we did also end up uh, using it for some additional music for this the uh, the songs. Right. There were some scenes that just felt so perfect to have some music added in and we used a piece uh, Beggars and Saints that Jai Uthal right. provided and I, I think there may be some harmonium in that piece. That's right, yes, and as well as of course the uh, Sarod. Right, yeah. Uh, I forgot to mention before, yes, so. Right, but, in t- uh, but you were answering the question about the ones that you played and I, I want to also uh, mention and acknowledge that, you know, while many uh, composers are working with synthesized sounds or, you know, sound uh, sampling. Sampling, yes. That this is all live music. This is all performed specifically for this, right. this audio book. Right. No, nothing was fed through a MIDI keyboard or anything like that. Right. Uh, 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 that yes, for, for some things that's okay, but for this project, it didn't seem to, that wouldn't have been organic enough. So much of the, the text does talk about this sort of spiritual element of the sound itself and so uh it, i felt that it was important to use real instruments being played with uh, real human hands yeah well i think that uh it's it started off the book itself is a beautiful uh story and the and with a lot of reference to and incorporation of music and I think that the music you've created with the performance of that music has just uh, really turned this into an, a particularly magical experience. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Well, the, uh, the text was so inspiring that it wasn't, it wasn't a challenge to sort of get inspired to make the music. It wasn't drudgery in that sense. It really was... Uh, uh, joyous and to, to, like I said, to be able to accentuate those elements that were in the text with some actual music instead of just having the listener imagine the music, uh, uh, we can give them a little bit of uh, a hint as to what that might be. Yeah, great. Thanks, Wallace, so much for taking the time to talk with me about the Searching for Mankumar project. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining us for Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. You can visit us at audiobookconnection.com to learn more. The podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Learn more at proaudiovoices.com. Again, thanks for being with us, and please join us for our next episode of Audiobook Connection. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.